Happy Thanksgiving, TCC. Hey, thanks. Thanks. I was wondering, how are you guys doing out there? If anybody's alive, there's this like whole, like it's like the Red Sea right here. It's just like this gap of empty chairs. Everybody's to the right and to the left. The rest of you in the middle back there are in trouble, I think. But, but what are you thankful for? Have you given that some thought already today? Have you been thinking about what Thanksgiving might look like for you today? And I think if we took some time to just share a little bit about what we're thankful for, we'd probably come up with some of the obvious ones, right? Our, our family, our jobs, our health, maybe our homes, our friends. Maybe it's because we're Canadian, you know? There's a lot of reasons why we might uh, be thankful for today. Have you ever thought about some of the spiritual benefits for which we ought to be thankful for? Things like God's love, of course, His grace, the fact of Jesus, the Spirit that He's left with us to, to comfort us, to empower us, to guide us, the, the gifts that He's blessed us with, the spiritual gifts. These are all reasons to be thankful for this morning. And this morning, I hope that we can discover some other reasons to be thankful We're just starting our series uh, of studies in the book of Colossians. And and just a little background to this. When I became the lead pastor here at TCC about two and a half years ago, um, the sense that I felt like God was just speaking to me was, make much of Jesus. And that has kind of led and kind of influenced a lot of decisions along the way, particularly when it comes to what what it is that we're preaching on. And so the first was uh, a a lengthy study in the Gospel of Mark, because I felt like, well, if we're going to make much of Jesus, then we ought to discover how he lived. And then we spent um, the better part of last year on the Sermon on the Mount, discovering more about Jesus' teaching. And that really has led us then to this study in Colossians as well, because Colossians, Paul's writing this, and he's talking all about the importance of Jesus, about what it means to be in Christ or in Him. It's that phrase that we see over and over again. And as we've been suggesting to you over these last number of weeks now, is that we can maybe boil that all down to one simple word, the word with. Being with God, being with others, wherever we go, whatever we do. And um, last week, somebody had texted uh, Pastor Adam and I, they had written with on a whole bunch of sticky notes and just stuck them up in all these different places in their home and then took pictures of each of these places and texted us the pictures. I thought that was a great idea. And and so if you want to like put a you know, take a picture of with somewhere like, you know, hashtag with or something like that and uh, tag the church. And uh, we'd love to kind of follow along with that. But, but even, um, I don't know if you can really see this or if you've taken time to even look at this image, um, but this was uh, Pastor Adam's creative work. And it was just this, this sense of that wherever we go. And so think about the pictures that you see behind there, you know, from the hockey rink or the sports arena in some way to the classroom, to the commute to work, maybe being downtown at work or in the office setting or having a meal somewhere, that wherever we go throughout the day, God is with us. And Pastor Adam laid a foundation for us last week, and he just introduced us uh, to the book of Colossians by looking at the first two, uh, two verses. And what we've discovered uh, so far, again, and we'll probably say this, some of these things over and over again until we really uh, kind of know that we're settled in and got this truth, is that, that this church in Colossae was a young church. 
And that maybe in some ways it was struggling in its faith. It was no doubt facing some challenges. And so Paul is writing to them really to reassure them, to, um, to resource them in some way, give them some, some real practical truths that they could kind of hang their hat on to encourage them in their daily Christian walk. And I think sometimes when we come to the Bible, we look at this and we think this is like this ancient uh, book, and we forget that these are real letters written to real people uh, at, at a real place in time with, with real issues to address. And so Paul had a very specific purpose in writing this letter to the Colossians. And really the only difference between them and us is that we're separated by time and space. And these words still speak to us. Excuse me. And these words, I believe, are timeless. And so they are relevant to us because they are written also to us. And even our our circumstances may not be all that different because it appears that there were some challenges that they were facing to their newfound faith just like we may experience some challenges to what is known as just kind of a historic orthodox Christian faith. Even the term evangelical has fallen on hard times in recent years and maybe even for some good reason. But let's not forget that the reason we are called an evangelical Christian is because we believe in the essence of the gospel. We believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again. And it is that salvation comes by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus. That the Bible is really the ultimate spiritual authority to which we give ourselves to. Those are good things to give ourselves to. And yet some of those good things are under attack. And so in a similar way, we believe that there is much for us when we study this letter. And I think one of the things we have to be cautious about is that we can sometimes miss the big picture when we begin to study it in these bite-sized chunks. And so my challenge to you right up front as we get into this series, I want to give you some homework, and you may not like this, but bear with me because I think you'll see in the long run some good benefit from this. Because when you get a letter, think about it this way, when you receive a letter or maybe an email, you don't just sit down and maybe read the first few sentences and then put it away and then come back to the next day and read the next few sentences or the next few paragraphs. No, you will sit down and you will read it from the top to the bottom, from the beginning to the end, so that you know what the full message is all about. And so here is something when we talk about the practice of Scripture or reading Scripture that I want to give to you. And this is the challenge to you. You don't have to email me and tell me that you're going to do it. Maybe you can tell a friend or hold each other accountable. And it's simply this. Commit to reading through the letter, all four chapters of Colossians, once a week. Okay? So maybe you just set aside Sunday afternoon. This is going to be my thing. I'm going to take, it'll probably only take you 10 to 15 minutes uh, to read through. But read it through, first verse to last verse of chapter 4, and just familiarize yourself with this letter instead of just coming and looking at these bite chunks. Because what will happen over time is once we get into chapter 2 or we're in the middle of chapter 3, you'll be like, well, I've read this already six or seven or eight times. Okay? So that's the homework, is to commit to that at least once a week. Now, if you're following in the reading plan, 
that we suggest that uh, we might read the scriptures in community. Tomorrow, you read Colossians chapter 1 and Tuesday chapter 2 all the way through till Thursday, and you'll read through all four chapters. Um, But don't do that apart from maybe sitting down and reading the whole thing. Because here's what you're going to get. When you read through it beginning to end, you actually start to get a feel for the flavor of the message. You get a a sense of what is really going on here. And what we'll discover is that the Apostle Paul, actually in writing this letter, he assumes a very pastoral heart. He takes this responsibility to pastor this church, even though it is very likely that he had never ever been there himself. And he had spent three years in Ephesus. Ephesus was about 160 kilometers west of of Colossae. And a man by the name of Epaphras, that uh, I think Pastor Adam introduced us to him last week, he probably came to Ephesus. Epaphras Epaphras and Ephesians. I'm going to not say that too many times in the same sentence because I'll mix it up badly. But evidently, it was in Ephesus that Epaphras gave his life to Jesus Christ because he heard the gospel proclaimed from the Apostle Paul. And so he returns to Colossae and he shares the gospel there with others. In other words, he he goes back as a messenger. He's a missionary now to his people. He becomes this church planter because people came to faith in Christ and a church was born because that's what's happened. People come together individually, come to faith in Christ, and then collectively the church um, is, uh, is born. And it appears that someone, or maybe a group even among them, at some point then started to share some teaching, some teaching that was a little off. It was a little bit dangerous. It's starting to threaten the church a little bit, maybe undermine their faith. And so suddenly they're not so sure about their faith anymore and what they believe. And Epaphras is rightfully kind of concerned about this, so he travels to visit Paul in prison, really to get some advice. He's just come alongside saying, Paul, how do I deal with this? And then Paul wrote this letter, and he sends it with uh, a guy named Tychicus and Onesimus. Chapters 4, you can read, verse 7 through 9. This will then make sense. When he says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. So he's going to send a verbal report in addition to this letter. And he says this, he says, he's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. So he commends this person to him. He says, you can trust him. He says, I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your heart I want to, I'm looking after you, he says, and he is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you, and they will tell you everything that is happening here. And so that's when you read the whole letter in context, you start to see these clues and how this letter was transmitted and even what, what Paul wrote. And what's so clear throughout this letter is that Paul wants to encourage because he's an encourager at heart. And so he gives thanks for what Christ has done in the lives of the Colossian believers. He knows that they've become a little uncertain of their faith and that their stability or their, their, their foundation in Christ is being threatened. And so he wants to ground them in their faith. But before dealing with any of these issues, he begins with thanksgiving, as he so often does in so many of his letters. And I find this remarkable, is that when you think about it, he's writing from a Roman prison. And even there in prison, he is overflowing with thanksgiving. 
See, a grateful heart is never dependent on our circumstances. When our focus is on what God has done and on what he is doing in our lives and in the lives of others, we'll always have reason to be thankful, no matter what is going on around us. Because if all we do is give thanks, say, for our job, and certainly we should be thankful for that, but then what are we thankful for when we lose that job? Right? If we're only thankful for our health, what do we then have to be thankful for when we don't have our health? So we always can come back to being thankful for what God has done and what he's doing in our lives and in the lives of others, and then we will have every reason in the world to be thankful. And what I've discovered, and Pastor Adam and I were even talking about this this week, is it's like each verse or each word you know is carefully constructed, that, that Paul was a master at that. And so none of these words are throwaway, and you could spend a lot of time looking at each, sometimes each individual word or phrase, because every one of them is rich and meaningful. And I want to just spend some time on this very opening phrase, we always thank God. We always thank God. And so it's interesting, you know, we, we refer so much that this is a letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church. So why is he saying we, or who is the we? Well, from last week, we discovered in verse 1 that Paul included Timothy in the writing of this letter. And it's very likely that Timothy was kind of um, Paul's secretary. Maybe Paul was dictating this, and Timothy was writing this down for him. And you can almost imagine this going on a little bit, like he's saying, okay, um, oh, I thank God. No, no, no. We thank God. You know, we always thank God. And, and they go back and forth, and then maybe even Timothy says, no, well, don't you want to say this? And Paul says, yeah, I, I do. That, that resonates with my spirit. That seems like that's how we need to put that. And then at the very end of the letter, he adds this phrase. He says, this greeting I'm writing in my own hand. It's like a way to authenticate the letter. But Paul honors Timothy by including him here right at the very beginning. And he says, it's not just me thanking God for you. It's we. We always thank God. Always. Constantly. Continually. It answers the question for each of us. When should we be thankful? Only on Thanksgiving? No. Always. Always. Constantly. We always thank God. So thank is, being thankful is just an expression of gratitude and appreciation. And we always thank God. I mean, notice that he directs his thanksgiving to God. Not to anyone in particular, but to God himself. Because Paul understands that God alone is really worthy of our thanksgiving. He's worthy of all of our praise, all of the glory. He's then the object of our thanksgiving. And he alone is responsible for any spiritual growth as we will soon see. And so he says, we always thank God. We always thank God. Basically, he says, when we pray for you, we pray with thanksgiving. And friends, take this away from this right here. That our prayers should always be saturated with gratitude. Paul knew nothing of prayer without thanksgiving. In fact, one commentator wrote, he says, you know, prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. It's a very picturesque thought. And so when we think about even the practice of prayer, 
when we think about engaging in conversation with God, it should be part of our practice that when we pray, we always think of thanksgiving. And here's a little thing to tuck away. Maybe you want to try this and say, you know what, when I sit down to pray, and you're like, I don't really know what to pray for. Well, you can start with thanksgiving. And start with maybe making a list of committing five to ten things every day that you're thankful for. And just think about how that might reorientate your perspective. Maybe you're struggling at work or you're struggling with a boss and you just kind of think, I don't know how I can do this, but God, I thank you for my boss. And you do that again the next day and another day. And bit by bit, our perspective changes. And so what do we thank God for? Well, let's get into the the rest of this text then. We always thank God. And Paul, I believe here, is thankful for three things. The first, I'm putting under the headings, he's thankful for the work of God. For the work of God. So after hearing from Epaphras, Paul is convinced of God's work in the lives of the Colossian believers. And you'll find this in verses 3 through 5. And so Paul thanks God for what he has done through Jesus. This is really ultimately the work of God. And he uses what some would refer to as as a triad, one of his favorite triads, right? Faith, love, and hope. These three together form a triad of God's grace. It's a favorite of the Apostle Paul. We see those three often linked together, and it's important because they actually are three key elements of the Christian life. And they together really form a basic but complete description of a follower of Jesus. You see, the presence of faith and love and hope is evidence of God's work in the heart and soul of a person. And none of these are actually natural. They're spiritual and supernatural. We're not capable of developing this on our own. And so he begins with faith. Faith is just evidence of God's spirit at work, as I've said. Faith ultimately comes from God. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus himself is the pioneer or the author and perfecter of faith. And so Paul says here that their faith is specifically in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus. And it reminds me of the verse in in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 where Paul is writing there. And he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And he says, even this faith is not from you. It's a gift of God. That God has gifted you the faith to believe. And faith in Jesus here, as Paul says, is an acknowledgement of God who is ultimately the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's first of all thankful that the work of God produced faith. And secondly, he's thankful that the work of God in Paul, or sorry, in the church uh, in Colossae, produced love. And God's Spirit here enables us ultimately then to love Jesus and others. We're in relationship with Jesus and with other followers of Jesus. It's really another one of these true signs of true spiritual life. <clears throat> There's a vertical dimension to love, right? It's the love of God. <clears throat> and we spent some time just a few weeks ago looking at the great commandment, the first part, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, all your strength. But there's also a horizontal dimension to that, loving others as yourself. 
And here specifically, Paul says, the love you have for all God's people. Notice how he says all God's people. Not some of God's people, not not the ones that I like, not the ones that are more like me, but a love for all other believers. And when you think about it, this is what makes, in a sense, the church so radically different. Because our our culture will know about the love and the context of family relationships, but they don't know about the love, ultimately, of complete strangers, people who are diverse. And that's what love within the church is so unique. We're really a fellowship of difference. Some are more different than others. And we're called and equipped and resourced to love one another. And love brings together people of different national and cultural backgrounds into a fellowship. And this family is born and we become brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says love for all God's people or some translations even use the word saints that uh, Pastor Adam alluded to last week. You see, we have saints in our church. Your saints. We have young saints and we have old saints. And our vision for TCC really is to be an intergenerational church. Not that we're separating the families out there at the back and you can kind of have your area. But there's a richness when we're worshiping and we hear a baby crying. Right? We care for one another. We love all the saints. And the source of this love is not something we conjure up ourselves, but it's found in God. Because it's God who gives us the ability to love one another. 1 John 4 verse 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from... I can't even test you. It's up there on the screen. From God. Right? Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, there's the love passage. And we're probably most familiar with it in the context of a, of a marriage, of a wedding ceremony. And it makes for, you know, good content for a sermon uh, at a wedding. But that's not how Paul ever intended that pa- passage to be applied. It's right in the context of the church. In verse chapter 12, it's all about the gifts and the unity in the midst of their diversity. And therefore, we need to love one another. And then chapter 14 gets on into, into, um, into worship and how the church uh, conducts itself. And the definition of love there is in the context of church. I mean, um, I don't know if I should do this. But I'm going to do it. 1 Corinthians 13, right? Because maybe we've lost this. But think about this not in terms of your spouse if you're married, but think about this person sitting behind you or in front of you. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Listen to this, friends. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Friends, is love really that important? (laughs) I think the Apostle Paul would say, yes, absolutely. 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You think about it, love, or sorry, God is, is invisible. That's what he's saying, right? No one has ever seen God. 
but he becomes visible when we love. Isn't that what John is writing about? John 13, verse 35, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. Friends, this love for one another is supernatural. It's a gift that God gives to us when we come to faith in Jesus. It unites us with other believers, and we thank God for it because it's a beautiful thing. And it's what made that early church so attractive. It wasn't their programs or their music or, 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 or their lights or anything. It wasn't even their preaching, if you can imagine that. But it was how a group of diverse people could sit down at a table and love and care for each other. That's what sets us apart. And when a church has that kind of love, it's something to be grateful to God for. The last one is hope. This is part of the work of God still. And I love how Paul puts this in verse 5. He says the, that faith and love that we just talked about, that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. It's a great word picture, right? Faith and love springing up from this hope. In other words, hope is the source or the motivation for the faith and love that I just talked about. Or you might want to think about it this way. Faith and love are actually a consequence of this hope. And it's this hope that strengthens our faith in Jesus and deepens our love for others. And the hope to which Paul is referring to here is really the hope of heaven. Because from Paul's perspective, hope has to always do with this ultimate future reality of heaven. And the hope that he's talking about isn't something tentative. It's not some kind of, um, uh, you know, ambiguous optimism like, you know, well, I hope it doesn't snow this week. <laughs> or I hope we have pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving dinner or with our Thanksgiving dinner. Right? Now, if you've seen the pie sitting on the counter, right? Now it's no more just an optimism. Now it's a sure and confident hope. And that's how the New Testament defines hope. A confident expectation and assurance of the many blessings that ultimately await the believer in the world to come. And Paul is reminding his readers, or I really should say listeners, because they would have heard this letter read to them. And then ultimately he reminds us, friends, that there is a glorious future that Christ has established in the heavenly realms that is far beyond our imagination and it's certainly far beyond this earthly existence. I mean, let's face it. Let's, you know, this is pretty good. Life is good sometimes. A lot of times. We have very enjoyable experiences. But spoiler alert, it will be much better. It will be much much better. This is not what we are created for. This that we experience is really just temporary. We're just passing through. This is ultimately not our final home. Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, he compares living on earth and spending eternity in heaven like the difference between renting and owning a home. 
right? And if you've rented, you realize you make, and maybe you still are, and you're like, well, this isn't really our home. You know, maybe we're not going to stay here very long. We're just going to wait until we have another opportunity. And because we're not going to stay here a long time, we're not even going to hang pictures. We're not going to get too settled here. But as soon as we buy our home, we're like, well, this is our home. We got to invest in it. We got to maintain it. We got to upkeep it. We got to renovate it every five years. We got to, we got to repaint. We got to do something. And he says, but if you have a difference, you live differently. And I think this is what, exactly what Paul was getting at when he writes in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, this grace, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, so it changes the way we live, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait, look at that, for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. And friends, too many of us, myself included, will often live like this world means everything. And that this is all there is. And you know why people, I think, are so freaked out about COVID? Because we know there's always a chance you could die. And the daily, you know, death count keeps that reality alive. Now, no way am I trying to minimize the risk or make light at all of death. And I know people have been touched and impacted by this even in recent weeks. But do I need to remind you that death is the future reality for every one of us? The statistics are in. One out of one die. Every one of us. But having an assurance that there is more, that there is life after the grave makes all of the difference. And that's why the Apostle Paul could write to the Thessalonians. He says, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no, do you know the verse? Have no hope. And if you've ever been to a memorial service where there is no hope, you know how deep that despair is. We're all aware of grief and sadness. We had three memorial services in the span of nine days in September. But what marked each one of those services was that they were marked by the hope of heaven. Now, in no way does that remove the grief that these, feel, that, that, that these families and we feel when we think of the loss that we've experienced But Paul is telling us again, friends, hope is not some abstract thing. It's not wishful thinking. It's a certain future reality. And I think we need to live in thanksgiving for that hope. (laughs) Because it will change the way we live. And so Paul gave God thanks for the faith and love and hope of these Colossian believers. And friends, I just want to say this. I know I'm already worried about going long, but you need to know that we, as a staff, we thank God for you. We thank God for your faith. 
and for your love and for your hope. (laughs) I probably don't tell you this enough, but I love you and I give God thanks for you. It's hard for me to believe that um, this coming January, I'll mark 30 years already in vocational pastoral ministry, and I know I don't look over 40, um, but I've served in, those, in only three churches in those 30 years. And I always say that your first church is, is always a good church. It's a little bit like a honeymoon. And certainly we had a great experience in Calgary. Um, they celebrated when I, as a single guy, met Tina and we got married. And they were a big part of that. The second church in Ontario, you know, we had some challenges there. But we, we were loved and cared for in incredible ways. Both of our children were born there. Tina was uh, extremely sick in one season uh, of our lives there as a church. And people just lavished us with meals and cared for us in incredible ways. I was given lots of grace there. I could make lots of mistakes. But then when God called me here to TCC 12 and a half years ago already, don't tell the other churches any of this, but you're pretty awesome. It's been an incredible journey. I can't imagine being somewhere else, so I hope you'll keep me a little while longer but I thank God for you. Just evidenced in so many ways, your generosity, your investment in heavenly treasures, you just get it. You understand that, you know, there's a lot of things that we can disagree about, but we don't need to, you know, major on those minor things. We need to be about the essentials. And you've heard me say this, especially if you've come to a membership class, right? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty or freedom to think differently and have different thoughts about things. But in all things, charity. It's the love that I talked about earlier. So friends, today or tomorrow, when you gather around the table and you're about to embark on a major carb load... (laughs) Can you begin by thanking God for the work that he has done in your life and in the life of others around you? Thank him for the gifts of faith and love and hope that are all yours, all ours, because of what he has done. And friends, our prayer needs to be so saturated with thanksgiving always. And so Paul is thankful for the work of God, And for the growth of God's kingdom, let me just touch on these quickly. Because just as the gospel came to them, Epaphras had shared it with them, as I said at the beginning. And so the gospel is really spreading throughout the whole world. And God's kingdom is growing. And Paul gives them this global perspective. And I think it's something that we need to be thankful for as well this morning. Because after all, we're recipients of that gospel message ourselves. Somebody had shared the gospel with somebody who shared it with somebody who ultimately shared it with us and enabled us to put our faith in Jesus Christ because of that stirring of God's Spirit in our lives. 
And Paul was probably using a little hyperbole here because the gospel had not yet impacted the whole world, but it certainly was well on its way when he says in verse 6, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood, understood God's grace. And man, there's already a lot there and I'm not going to take that much time to unpack it, but listen to this. He makes it clear that the gospel message first came as a word right? They heard the true message of the gospel. And by even saying the true message, it's implying that there was a false message. And so when the gospel is preached, the truth is being proclaimed. And so they heard this message, and then he says they understood it. And in verse 7, they learned it. And it reminds me a little bit of Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 10 when he says, how then can they call in the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And the message is a message about grace because the gospel is about grace. And Epaphras brought this message to them. He taught them about this grace of God, that grace isn't something that you earn. It's something that's freely given. It's not ultimately about our commitment to Jesus, but about his commitment to us. And he came and lived and died and rose again. And we believe in him for the forgiveness of sin. We have eternal life in the future, and we can live a full and abundant life now. And as we've seen this hope, this future hope, results ultimately in the faith and love that we've already talked about, or as as Paul puts it here, love in the Spirit. And the gospel continues to grow around the world because it speaks to the universal condition of all people, regardless of any cultural or ethnic or socioeconomic background. Salvation in Jesus Christ through grace is a message for all people. And friends, there's no question that the gospel is still having great impact around the world. People come to faith in Jesus every single day. And so, yes, just as Paul says here, the gospel is still producing fruit and growing. Now, maybe not so much in North America because of maybe a lot of other uh, influences, but in other parts of the world, it certainly is bearing fruit and growing. I've mentioned this previously, that Christianity is exploding in countries like Iran. An evangelical pastor, formerly an Iranian uh, Muslim, said, we find ourselves facing what is more than a conversion to the Christian faith. It's a mass exodus from Islam. And one article about this topic I read said this, water is limited, pollution is terrible, structural planning is poor. This is about the country of Iran. He says a lot of people don't trust the government at all. And since the government claims to be an incarnation of Islam, it follows that people have also been growing disillusioned with their faith. Now, before we think that this is a huge percentage of the population. They're suggesting that only 1.5% of Iranians would say that they're Christians. But about 20 years ago, the number of Christians from a Muslim background was maybe between five and 10,000 people. And today there are estimates that there are between 800,000 and a million Christians in the country of Iran. And over 20 years, that's incredible growth. I read about one pastor who had an online Bible study during the pandemic here. It started with 40 people. He now has over 600 people on this Zoom call or however he's delivering, but it's online. 
And friends, there's only one primary reason that this happens, and it's because of grace. There's no single word that more accurately defines the essence of the gospel. Grace, or God's unmerited favor from God. This free gift. We don't earn it. We just receive it as a gift from God. And this gospel of grace is bearing fruit and it's growing. And for Paul, that is reason for thanksgiving. And so what do we do with that? One, we make sure that we've received that gift of grace ourselves. Because with it, everything else follows. Secondly, like Paul, I think we need to give thanks to God for the growth of the gospel in other parts of the world. And pray that it continues. And pray for the safety of Christians that are are having to... you know, they're not worried about masks or going to church or not going to church. They might not even sing at all, or if they do, they have to sing in hushed tones so that nobody hears them or turns them in for their faith. We pray for them and those that are persecuted for their faith. And I think one more thing. We need to pray for a boldness and courage to share the gospel ourselves. Friends, we're going to be talking about practices over the next number of weeks. Pastor Adam's doing a a class in Equip. I think we need to rediscover the practice of evangelism. I'm not saying that this is just for those special people that have the gift of evangelism. This is recognizing that as a follower of Jesus Christ, I have a responsibility to tell other people about Jesus, to tell other people about the hope that I have. And friends, during a pandemic when your coworkers are freaking out and, and everybody's afraid of everything and everyone, we can come into that and just say, can I tell you the reason that I can have hope and joy and peace in the midst of this? It's because of grace. Friends, so we give God thanks for his work of grace in our lives, for the growth of his kingdom, and lastly, for the servants who minister among us. Verses 7 and 8, Paul introduces us to Epaphras. He writes, Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. And so this message went both ways, right? It was Epaphras who went and shared the gospel or the good news with the people in Colossae, and then it was Epaphras who came and told Paul the good news about the Colossian believers. And Paul calls him a dear fellow servant. Because from Paul's perspective, since they shared the same faith and the same message, they were colleagues, even though they never served together at the church. And this must have been a huge encouragement to Epaphras. And I think his comments underscore here how much Paul values Epaphras. He's thankful for his ministry. He's thankful for his fellowship. He's thankful for his partnership. Friends, as much as I... Say, I give thanks always to God for you, and I love you, and I thank you. I have to say thanks to our staff. Because even on my worst days, <laughs> they put up with me. They often will hold my hands when I feel a little helpless myself. And they've been incredible during this season. I would not have survived the last 18 months, and I mean that honestly, without our staff. Anne and Marnie, Adam, Quinn. Jenna, Jenny, Tina, Sean. You guys probably never meet Sean, but you know what? He's the one here Saturday night faithfully setting up these chairs, keeping them six feet apart so you can be safe. Give God. Join me in giving God thanks for them.
But I also know that we're all ministers. <laughs> and it's not about our staff doing all the serving. But it's each of us being ministers ourselves, caring for one another. And so can I just once again encourage you, make sure you reach out to someone today. Today or tomorrow would be a perfect time to just send a note, make a phone call and say, hey, God put you on my heart and I just want you to know that I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful for the friendship that we shared. I'm thankful for the times we spent in the kitchen in the past and I'm praying that we can do that again someday. I'm thankful that we served in children's ministry together and I'm praying and hopeful that someday we'll be able to do that again. I miss being with you because you meant the world to me. You encouraged me. Friends, we can do that. Send a note of thanks. And so friends, this Thanksgiving, may we like Paul give thanks for God's work that is evident in you, for the growth of his kingdom, and for fellow servants and faithful ministers of Christ. Friends, we do indeed have much to be thankful for on this Thanksgiving Sunday. Let's pray together. God, we do give you thanks. Oh, where do we start? Lord, I give you thanks for this church. Not a perfect church. But I know that it's made up of people who faithfully desire to walk with you. People who do recognize that you have done an incredible work in gifting them faith and love and hope. And I pray, Father, that maybe today you stir in us a deep passion to be involved in sharing the message that you have entrusted to us, that we would be your ambassadors, being people who are always prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. And Father, we pray that as we love one another, as we love our community, that people would be drawn to you. Lord, it's true. There's so many reasons for us to be thankful for. May you orient our hearts to those things that are true spiritual blessings from you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.